Well, tonight I want to uh, begin a series of thoughts together, really, more than expository sermons from a particular text of Scripture. I want to deal with a topic over the next several weeks, maybe even a couple of months. Uh, Over the past several months, if not even a year, uh, the elders have been confronted due to different circumstances that needed our own attention and our own shepherding in issues like that with the importance of looking into the doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement. We certainly understand in a general way, um, if we think about it, we understand, or at least we should as Christians, what the atonement is. When I mention the doctrine of the atonement, that should conjure up, at least in our minds, on a general level, what the atonement is. It is, uh, in a general sense, it is the covering of, or the shielding, if you will, of sinners from the wrath of God. The shielding of sinners from, the, from God's outworking of wrath against them. That's the idea of the atonement. It is a covering. It is a, a shielding, if you will. And of course, we understand as Christians that this was ultimately accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. We just sang a song about the cross and all that took place Uh, by means of Jesus Christ at the cross. And so that's the ultimate understanding for us as Christians that atonement happened by means of and through the death of Jesus Christ. But that reality alone uh, does not adequately answer all of the questions that arise concerning the atonement. And what or for whom, the primary question is, what or for whom did Jesus die? For what or for whom did Jesus actually die? The author Tom Wells wrote some years ago in the little book concerning the atonement, and he asked this question, quote, if we ask the question, what kind of act was the death of Christ? One answer is not hard to find. It was an act that aimed to bring men to God. Unquote. Pretty simple question, simple way to look at it. If we ask what kind of death was the death of Christ, the simple answer is it was an act that was aimed to bring men to God. And I don't think any of us would disagree with with that answer, we would certainly say, yes, that's, that's what Christ's death did. It brought men to God. But even that answer uh, isn't, doesn't answer every question because it raises other questions when we think about it in those terms. And, I, and I'm going to ask us tonight and over the next several months to just kind of stretch our minds a little bit as we think on this. Because what are the things, if, if it was to bring us to God, if the death of Christ was aimed at bringing men to God or bringing people to God, then what were the things that were keeping us from God? If we needed to be brought to God, what were then the things that keep a person from coming to God? In other words, if there's nothing in the way of keeping us from coming to God then Jesus would not have had to die, right? 
There was nothing that was giving that that barrier between us and God, then why would Jesus have to die at all? Why would there need to be some kind of atonement for me as a person? So if Jesus had to die, and we know that He did, then there must be barriers between a person and God that needs to be broken down. And the particular barriers have to be broken down through the death of Christ. In other words, if we're separated in some way from God, or if there's a barrier between us and God, and the death of Christ is the very thing that atones and brings us to God, that's the aim, then the death of Christ must be the very thing that deals with those barriers. Those things that cause us to not come to God, since He's the one who dies, and since He is the one thereby And through Him we are brought to God. Now, it would be easy for us to say that it's an unwillingness in us and on our part to come to God and that that is the barrier. It would be easy for us to just simply say, well, the reason people don't come to God is because they have an unwillingness to come to God and that that's the barrier. But that's really too short-sighted. There's a sense of truth to that, but that's really a short-sighted view of the condition, really, of mankind. Because if that's the only thing that stands between me and God, then Christ's death really isn't necessary either. You say, why? Because all I have to do is change my mind about God. If it's just simply my unwillingness to come to God, all I have to do is change my mind about God. And when my mind's changed about God in my own self, then I'll just embrace Him out of my own willingness. That would solve the problem. If the only barrier between me and God were my unwillingness, then I just need to be willing. I just need to be convinced. I just need to have the right information. I just need to have someone tell me exactly what I should know so that when I can am convinced about that, my will is edited to the place where now I'm willing. Or to say it another way, if the only thing between me and God is my willingness, then my willingness is the only thing that needs to be convinced. Right? I just need to be convinced. I just need someone to be a good enough salesman to sell me the product and convince me that I need that product. If that's the only thing. So why did Christ die then? If it's only my willingness that is the barrier between me and God, then why would Christ have to die? We know that the Bible says that the difficulty between us and God is so much more than just a change of our mind and our thinking about God. We know that. Right? It's true that in order for us to be saved, our minds must be engaged. Right? We, we do not get saved without first engaging the intellect. In other words, information about Jesus Christ. No one gets saved without hearing the gospel. Right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So the intellect is involved. So no one is saved unless our minds are engaged. But there's a whole bunch more going on than that. It isn't just convincing. So much more going on than that that was meant to happen through the death of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, the death of Jesus Christ deals with more than just our attitude or our willingness to embrace God. So what are those things then that are barriers that needed to be broken down? That's the question that we're asking here tonight, and we're not fully going to even answer that here tonight, but we're going to begin to answer that over the next several weeks. What are the barriers? If Christ's death is to bring me to God, if that's what atonement is, this covering, this the shielding of me from the wrath of God through the death of Christ, if if, if I won't come on my own, these barriers need to be dealt with, and they were dealt with through the death of Christ. What are these barriers? Well, the Bible says at least there are three barriers that we have, right? We have the reality by which we are slaves to sin. That's the first barrier. We are slaves to sin. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that when you are saved, you're to no longer let sin reign over you. The implication there is that sin reigns in you without Jesus Christ. You have no power to reign over it. It it, it rules you. You are a slave to sin. It doesn't matter how good we package up that sin. It doesn't matter how much nice paint we paint that sin. We are slaves to sin. That's one barrier. Another barrier, though, is that we are slaves of Satan. Slaves of Satan. People say, well, what do you mean we're slaves of Satan? Well, turn, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. This is exactly what it says. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1, in which you formerly walked, get this, verse 2, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's just describing Satan by different terms. He's describing the, the forces of wickedness that God had cast out of the glory of heaven when Satan fell and was swept away, and he swept away a third of the angelic being. That's all Paul's describing here. Why? Why are we under that power? Because that's who we are by nature. We talked about that a little bit this morning. We are slaves to sin, and because of our sin, we are slaves to Satan. But also, as we mentioned already, because of those things, therefore, we are held for punishment before a holy God. We are under the wrath of God. And we clearly saw that even in our study of Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Because God made it evident to them. And you say, how? Well, ever since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that all men are without excuse. We have no excuse for saying we don't know God. We have no excuse for denying God. We have no excuse for suppressing the truth before God. We are under the punishment, under the wrath of God, because we are slaves to sin, slaves to Satan, and we deserve God's wrath. 
So in the context of our subject matter tonight, if the death of Christ, if the atonement, that's what we're talking about, death of Christ, put an equal sign there and say the atonement. If the atonement, if it is to bring us to God as a slave of sin, slave of Satan, under the punishment of God Himself, then it needs to deal, it needs to be a death with at least the very thing those barriers need to be destroyed. It needs to be a death that at least, at the very least, destroys those. So what kind of act was the death of Jesus Christ? Well, it was an act that deals with and gives meaning to all of God's acts that deal with those barriers. In other words, the death of Christ is the very thing that deals with those barriers and gives meaning to all of the things that God includes in that death of Christ that gives uh, that, that brings all of that about. And we're going to begin to look at that tonight. This is where I want to focus our attention, at least for the foreseeable future, because these acts of God that we're talking about that are included and wrapped up in enveloped in the death of Christ, deal with the barriers that separate us from Him. Let me say that again. The acts of God that are enveloped in the atonement deal with the barriers that separate us between us and God. It is these very things that are defined by the atonement. Now, the acts of God that deal with these barriers through the death of Jesus Christ are brought to us in Scripture through certain words. God has given us His Word. He gave us a written document that explains who He is, and He gave us certain words that are wrapped up in and enveloped in the atonement. In other words, words are used by God in the Word of God to describe in a, in, in a way the death of Christ. They describe the death of Christ and how that death has dealt with the barriers that separate us between God. So, in the death of Christ, by these certain words, God, by these acts, deals with our sin problem, our slavery to Satan problem, our punishment before Him problem. So over the next several weeks, I want to just cover a few of these and give us a, a scope and an understanding, or at least a view of these from Scripture. So that when we look at the atonement and we think about the death of Christ and for whom did Christ die, we're going to have a clear, hopefully a clearer answer to that by the end of this whole thing. So if you're taking notes, keep all your notes, because it's going to be very helpful over time. All right, the first word we need to look at is the word redemption. Redemption. Redemption is a term that is enveloped in the idea of atonement. Now, what is meant by redemption? By the way, it's a word used in the, in the Old and New Testament. If you type in some concordance redemption in your electronic device or whatever, a word search, you'll find that it shows up probably 64, somewhere in the 60 range, 64 if I type it in mine. 
is the word redemption. If you type in the word redeemed or redeemer, you're going to find it 141 times in the Scripture. So it's all over the place in the Scripture, this idea of redemption. What is redemption? Well, redemption at its base level means deliverance. Deliverance or the idea of release. Release. Uh, you might even think of it as to, to be set free by a price. To be set free by a price. In the Scriptures, the word redemption is used in the, with that idea in relation to all kinds of things. In relation to nations, nations oftentimes were redeemed. Israel was a redeemed nation by God. You have individuals who find redemption and get redemption. This whole idea of deliverance and release. And we'll look at some of this as we go on. And then you have just general things, general uh, stuff that is redeemed. So redemption is something that we need to understand when we think about the atonement. It's a, it's a, it's a term that we cannot confuse or we will confuse what the death of Christ actually means. Something we have to understand because it's everywhere in the Scriptures. You, you look all over the place. I mean, even just those two words, redemption and redeemer, are some 205 times in the Scriptures. So it's all over the place. And we'll, we'll certainly look at some of those texts as we go over the next several months. But redemption in the Bible often, and we might even say always, I don't think often is a strong enough word. We I think we need to say it always involves the payment of a price. Anytime you see redemption at all, there's always the idea, the concept, the principle of the payment of a price. For example, if you lived in the Old Testament times and you had a slave, you would not let them go free without being paid some kind of price for their freedom. That was a redemption price. It was a price paid that was deemed necessary for their deliverance, for their release. I'm going to show you this. Go to Leviticus 25. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The book of the law. Leviticus 25, verse 47. Some of your Bibles may even say above that verse, the redemption of a poor man, right? That, that just gives you an idea of what this section of Scripture is dealing with, right? Verse 47, now if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you becomes sufficient and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you or to the descendants of a stranger's family. Now get the idea. Here is someone who is, who's got foreigners in the land. The foreigners are doing okay. And this person who is, who is part of the land, the, the indigenous people of the land, if you will, is so poor that he can't even provide for himself. And so he's deciding to sell himself in order to, uh, as an indentured slave, in order to provide for his own livelihood. 
That's the idea. So he's done that, and he says, if he's done that, and he's given to that, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. What is the redemption right? Well, this is it. One of his brothers may redeem him. One of his brothers may redeem him. That's redemption right. Family had the right to redeem, the first right to redeem an individual, to pay his debt, to get him back out of that debt load so that he might resume normal living. So if you were in some kind of debt, you could actually sell yourself uh, into a slavery in order to release that debt. We, we today call that getting a loan. Getting a loan. We take out loans and we are indentured servants to the person who gave us the loan. And that ball is attached to your ankle for the next 30 plus years if you're buying a house. So for you who don't own a house, home ownership's overrated. But the only way to be redeemed from that, the only way to be redeemed and released from that slavery was for your family to pay the appropriate redemption price for you. If someone would like to do that for me with my home mortgage, I'd be glad to take it. Redeem me from that debt. So it was a redemption price. A redemption price. And thereby through giving the redemption price that they would be free. They would be redeemed. Well, it was the same with property. It was the same with property. To redeem property back, if you had a piece of land, you wouldn't let it go without getting some kind of tangible uh, or some kind of intangible promise, if you will. If, if you didn't have something tangible, you could give an intangible. You could, prom- you could promise it, compensate for the value of the land so that you might get it. It was a purchase price. These are the kind of transactions that were common in Israel. And once the Hebrew scriptures were translated into the Greek language that we know for the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, the only way the word redemption was used was, this is why I said often is not strong enough, it's used in there to always in connection with the paying of a price for the, to secure the release. In other words, there's no indication at all anywhere in the Septuagint where the payment of a price is not taken for release. It's always that way. It might be the release of a person. It might be the freedom or release of property. But the price-paying reality was always the necessary part. A price always had to be actually paid. In other words, it wasn't a potentiality that the price would be paid. It was always actual before release ever happened. And I'm going to say that over and over and over again as we go along through this study because the actuality and the potentiality idea can be very confusing when people talk about the atonement. Because for whom did Christ die? Was it an actual death for actual redemption? Or was it an actual death for potential redemption? Very important distinction. And what I'm trying to show us is that the Bible clearly declares that redemption, this terminology, this act of God by means of the atonement of Christ was always in Scripture an actual reality. It was always actually paying a price for freedom. 
I'll show you another one. Go to Numbers 3. Numbers chapter 3. In Numbers 3, as God is preparing to bring Israel out of Egypt by the destruction of all the Egyptians firstborn, right? God is going to have a massive deliverance and He has said, I'm going to take the life of all the firstborn of Egypt. Firstborn animal, firstborn human, whatever it is, He's going to take it. That's the cost. And yet at the same time, at the same moment, He claims all of the firstborn of Israel to be His own. Now, when God took something for His own, just like the Egyptians, it was normally a sacrifice. The Egyptians' firstborn were killed. They were taken. Their life was taken by God. They were put to death by God. But God didn't desire to kill the sons of Israel. Even though they were, He was taking them as His own, He didn't desire to kill them, so He redeemed them. Notice verses 11-13. through 13. He redeems them. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. There's the definition of firstborn. Whatever the first child that came from a woman in Israel, that was the firstborn. So I have taken, he says, I've taken the Levites instead of the firstborn for all, verse 13, for all the firstborn shall be mine on the day that I struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. The Lord says, listen, I set aside all the firstborn of Israel to be mine, and I'm going to redeem them by transferring the Levites in their place. The Levites are going to be mine. Rather than taking the firstborn from every tribe, I'm just going to take the tribe, the Levites from the tr that tribe to serve me. I am the Lord. So right here we have an example of this simple exchange taking place. This transference by a price being paid or an exchange happening, a Levite for a firstborn son. The Levite became the helper to the priest, and in that way they were a special servant to God for their entire lives. So we could say, we could say by way of the principle of redemption that the Levite was the money, the Levite was the money by which a son of Israel was redeemed. They were the exchange price. They were the price given for the son of Israel. So since the Levite spent his life serving in the tent of meeting, the son of Israel was free to live his own life. In fact, if you go over to verse 46, that same chapter, it's made even more clear. Notice what he says. 
And for the ransom of the 273 of the firstborn of the sons of Israel who are in excess beyond the Levites. So now you have a problem, right? You have too many firstborn sons. You have 273 more firstborn sons than there are Levites. Well, how are we going to redeem those other 273? If the Levites redeem the the first ones, how are we going to redeem these ones who are in excess of that? Here's what God says. You shall take five shekels apiece per head. You shall take them in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras. And give the money, the ransom of those who are in excess among them to Aaron and his sons. So Moses took the ransom money from those who were in excess beyond those ransomed by the Levites from the firstborn of the sons of Israel. He took the money in terms of the shekel sanctuary, 1,365 shekels. And he gave the ransom money to Aaron and to his sons at the command of the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Right there, you see a ransom price being paid. Being paid as the redemption. Five shekels per head. There wasn't a Levite to cover the cost of that one Israel or Israelite, then it was five shekels for them. But there was still a problem, right? As we saw here. There was the problem of the excess that we have been talking about, this excess of Levites to redeemed. So how would they be redeemed? It was by money. It was by money, not by a person, not by a Levite, but by money. A price had to be paid. It couldn't be paid with a Levite. It had to be paid with money. A price had to be paid. So it was freedom by the payment of a price. And the price of a person or the price of a substitute, i.e. the money that was there. So right here in the beginning of the Scriptures, we see the idea of a redemption by means of a substitute. Redemption, freedom, deliverance by means of someone else paying. Another person being substituted in the place. And it's clear that the idea and concept of redemption played a major part in the life of Israel. This whole idea of redemption was, was around every day. They were dealing with this idea of redemption. And redemption most often, by the way, interestingly enough, was always a family matter. Redemption carried an emphasis more so on the idea of it being a family matter. In other words, oftentimes the redeemer, the person redeeming, was a relative. Was someone who was related to the one who needed redemption. And, th- and this is where I kind of want to spend our, the rest of our time tonight, is here on this idea and looking at the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. Because this is what you see happening throughout the book of Ruth. This whole redemption idea taking place. Right? Redemption, as I said, was often a family matter. It was a family idea or or a family concept. Most of the time, like I said, the Redeemer, the one paying the price, was a close relative as we hear the term in, the, in Ruth, 
was a kinsman, a kinsman, someone who was a relative, a kinsman of the person who needed to be redeemed. And that's no accident. That's no accident that God would show us that because of what Christ has accomplished. This whole principle runs throughout Scripture. So, so his family, the person's family, was the one responsible to help. And, and, and that may seem somewhat strange to us, but this is what the book of Ruth drives at, right? That's the story that lies within the book of Ruth, this kinsman-redeemer principle in clear color. And so here you have a man from Israel, as chapter 1 tells us, who along with his wife Naomi and their two sons leave during a famine. There's a famine in Israel. They leave and they go to the nearby country of Moab. Well, it wasn't a very pleasant move. I've moved some 30 times in my life and I can't recall them ever really being pleasant, not in the sense that it wasn't pleasant after we moved, but the moving process is not pleasant. But this wasn't a happy move for other reasons, because before long, the man from Israel died. He died. His wife Naomi was left in Moab with her two boys, and she finds them Moabite wives. She finds them gals that they can marry in order that she might have children through them, grandchildren. The boys are still alive. The boys can support their mom. And so there's a, a sense in which there's a livelihood that can go on. So she finds these wives for them, and, but it's not long after that that both the sons die. So that Naomi is left with no one from her own family, even though she had come and been in Moab for now probably 10 years. She's left in Moab with her two daughters-in-law and no one to care for them. No one to care for them. And so when she hears that the famine's over in Israel, she says she's going to head back. And of course, one of her daughters-in-law stays in Moab at the behest of Naomi, and Ruth refuses to do that, even though Ruth is a Moabite. She refuses to stay in Moab, and she goes with her back to Israel. And Ruth's devotion to Naomi really is seen in the words of her mother-in-law, or, or the words of Ruth to her mother-in-law, as well as Naomi, when we see it here in Chapter 1, right? They lifted up their voices in verse 14 and wept again, and Oprah kissed her, and her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, and her gods return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. 
where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me. And worse, if anything but death parts you and me. It's amazing. We read these words right here some thousands of years after they were given to us in the Scriptures. And yet, there's a great picture here of selfless love, isn't there? Ruth's love for her own mother-in-law was selfless love, even to the point of leaving her own kinship. You can only imagine what Naomi must have felt when Ruth said that to her. Of course, verse 18 says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. She knew she wasn't going to change Ruth's mind. What do they do? Two, men, two women head back off, and they return to Bethlehem. Turn to Bethlehem so that they might begin life again in Israel, trying to scratch out some kind of existence for themselves. And in that culture, as we know, it was a, a very sad thing, a very bitter thing, as the term is used, for Naomi, the mother-in-law, to come back as an old woman who had no male members of the family to care for her. It was a very sad thing. She had no one to care for her but Ruth. Ruth was there to try to help support her, but Ruth wasn't a, uh, by the principles of God and how God had designed even the home. She wasn't to be the, the wage earner. It was to be the males who took care of the family in that way. So Ruth couldn't really support her. There was little that she could do to try to earn any kind of living for them. And the text tells us that since it was the barley harvest that was going on, she would go out to the fields and try to glean at least some of the barley that might have been dropped while the people were gathering up the barley from the fields. She might be able to get a little bit of grain that had been dropped by those who were reaping the fields. And so the work would have been very hard and it would have produced very little just by way of her own efforts. Um, so if Ruth had not been devoted as she was, she probably would have been in the field thinking to herself, why in the world did I come back here to do this? You know, she would have been much better off by way of economics if she had just stayed in Moab. But that's where the kind of story takes a turn, if you will. <clears throat> that's where it turns in its subject matter, and, and we begin to see this idea of redemption happening. Because in the goodness of God, and in the grace of God, and the mercy of God, Ruth soon finds herself gleaning from the fields of Boaz. <clears throat> and Boaz was a relative of Naomi. She was a he was a relative of Naomi because he was a relative or part of the kinship of Naomi's previous now dead husband. And he, Boaz, was very well off. He was, had plenty to go around for himself, and he, so he was just the opposite of what Naomi and Ruth were. <clears throat> and so in Boaz, we meet this idea, this concept in the Old Testament of the kinsman Redeemer. 
You see this idea of one who is a family member being the redeemer, right? You say, well, the terminology is kind of weird for us in our own vernacular today, but we have to understand it because God had provided for the poor in ancient times to be able to get back the land that they might have been forced to sell in order to alleviate their pro- their poverty. In other words, someone in the family, they could have had property, they couldn't do the work, they couldn't get money, they were poor, and so they'd sell the land in order to provide for themselves. And the one who bought the land back for them was called the Redeemer. He was called the Redeemer. And that would probably be someone in their family, a brother or a close relative, a kinsman. So you have this idea of the kinsman redeemer, someone who would restore them back to what they should be. And so Ruth is in the fields of Boaz gleaning, right? And we know how the story goes. We know that Boa, he, she meets Boaz and Boaz has an affinity for her, doesn't know who she is. Someone else tells her she's a Moabitess woman, but she's related to Naomi and he knows Naomi. And so he decides that he's going to be the redeemer. The field, they have a field that used to belong to, to her husband, And in order to alleviate their poverty, they are thinking of selling that field. And it should have been passed down to her sons, but her sons are now dead. And so in order to alleviate their own poverty, they would sell the field. And yet there is Boaz who's deciding and desiring to be the redeemer. And yet there's one problem. Ruth comes with the field. And there's another person in front in line of him. There's another relative, if you will, who has redeemer rights, has rights of first refusal, if you will, for redeeming Ruth and Naomi. And part of the plan is that Ruth is to come with the field. So whoever buys the field is to restore Ruth in the sense that the Old Testament rule was if you had a brother who did not have children who died and his wife was childless, you as a brother were to step in and to, and to produce children on behalf of your brother. And that was why Ruth came with it. Well, this man, of course, didn't want to fulfill that, didn't think that was something he could do. And so he moves aside and Boaz redeems the field and marries Ruth. He buys the field and marries Ruth. And of course, the story ends, as we know, with Naomi receiving all kinds of congratulations from the women who are in Bethlehem because of the grandson that is born to her. Right? We know that because he is in the line of David. Notice what it says. So Boaz in chapter 4 and verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. 
And then the women said to Naomi, this is the grandmother, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. Well, it certainly did become famous because that's Obed, who is the grandfather of King David. So God had a plan. God had a plan. The marriage of Ruth and the birth of an heir is an interest to us even today because of the whole principle of redemption. The idea of redemption whereby Boaz redeems the field with this deliverance of Ruth and Naomi from their poverty. He buys them out of poverty. Out of the slave market. That required him to be the kinsman redeemer. And so when you look at the book of Ruth, there are three things that are true of every kinsman redeemer. One is that they had to be a family member. That's what the kinsman idea was. They're a kinsman redeemer. Second, they had to have the ability to redeem. Right? They weren't a kinsman redeemer if they couldn't actually carry out their redemption. They had to have the ability to do that since redemption was from debt or from slavery or to buy someone out of death, as we will see in the future. They had to have the ability to be able to do that. So if it was a payment of a price, like Boaz, he's buying this field, he had to have enough surplus of income in which he could do that for his kinsmen. So there was a family member, they had to have the ability, and as we saw in Ruth, they had to have a willing heart to do it. The first one was unwilling to take Ruth. Boaz was willing so Boaz fits the picture well. He was a family member. He had the ability and he had a willing heart. He was willing to use his goods to deliver Ruth and Naomi from their distress, from their problem. Now when you turn to the New Testament and you think about the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, we think about what God has accomplished, we see God form a new family. We see God make up a family of needy people. Those who are slaves of sin, slaves of Satan, under His wrath. This new family of needy people, unable to help themselves unable to do anything for themselves by means of dealing with their problem. And therefore, he calls for a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. And when he comes, that kinsman redeemer does just that. He delivers his people by the payment of a price. What's the price? His own death. His own death. God, God the Father, is the Father Redeemer. You say, what do you, what do you mean by that? We'll go over to Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah 63. 
Notice what it says about God the Father. Isaiah 63. Notice what verse 15 says. Look down from heaven and see from thy holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and, and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Interesting, the Old Testament recognizes God the Father as being the redeemer. You're our redeemer. Are the one who buys us back. And so when you get to the New Testament and you turn to Hebrews, Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I'll get there in a minute. I'm turning these pages. Notice what it says about our high priest, the one who came to us, right? The writer of Hebrews in verse 9 says, but we do see Him, he's talking about Jesus, who has been made a li- for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect through the author of their salvation through suffering. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook in this of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. There's our slavery to Satan. He might render him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver, there's the idea of redemption, that he might redeem those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I, I hope you see what, what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to get at this, this idea and this understanding so that we, when we think of the atonement, at least in a general sense, we understand it 
that one of the acts of God that's done in the atonement is this idea of redemption. And the idea of redemption is a family matter. It is a kinsman redeemer matter by which there is a payment. Someone is paying a price. Someone has the means to deal with the problem and they are willing to deal with the problem. And it was God who dealt with the problem. It was God who dealt with our problem. Notice just one more passage and then we'll be finished for tonight. But Luke chapter 1, probably two more actually. Luke chapter 1. Notice Zacharias' prophecy when Jesus had been born or when, when John the Baptist had been born, right? And after his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? Because he has visited us and accomplished Redemption for His people. Now, if there's any verse that that speaks to the actuality of the atonement, that it actually taking place when Christ died, that actual atonement happened for sin, not potential atonement, this verse ought to settle it. He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. Past tense, done deal. He has accomplished redemption. Now, notice what happens with us as people so quickly. Go over to Luke chapter 24. Zacharias says that in chapter 1. He's prophesying about the coming of John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ who redeems us. And all the ministry of Jesus Christ goes along. Jesus Christ is born. He, he has His ministry on the earth. They, many, many people hear about it. They see about it. They've been waiting for the Messiah. They've been waiting for the Redeemer to come, just as Zacharias has said. The Redeemer, He has redeemed His people. And then Jesus dies. People are saddened. They thought Jesus was going to be their Redeemer. Of course, they were thinking redemption was an earthly thing. Redemption was something by way of deliverance from the oppression that was over them by way of the government. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, in fact, thwarted that at every turn because that's not what redemption is. That's not our problem. Our problem is not the external things of the here and now. Our problem is the internal things, those things that separate the barriers between us and God, our sin problem, our slavery problem, our punishment problem. So by the time you get to Luke 24, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, here's these two guys walking back to Where they were on the road to Emmaus, they're walking. Talking about the situation and what has been going on. They're confused. 
They're having a conversation about all the things that had taken place, it says. And while they're talking to each other, Jesus himself approaches them and starts traveling with them. Supernaturally, Jesus has somehow shrouded who he is. They don't know it's him at the time. Their eyes are prevented from recognizing him, it says in verse 16. And he says to them, what are, what, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another? What are you talking about? He's not asking them for his own knowledge. He knows he's trying to help them understand what's going on. And they stood still and they were looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who's unaware of which, what's happened in these days? I mean, in our vernacular, we'd say, what are you, clueless? Do you know what's going on? Have you been living under a rock? And he says, then what things? And they say, these things, the, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be sentenced to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he who was going to be, it was he who was going to redeem Israel. He said, we, 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 we know what the Old Testament said. We, we had such great hope. We, we thought he was going to be the one to redeem. We missed it. Didn't get it. And they said, but there was these women around. These women seemed crazy. They were going to the tombs in the morning. They said Jesus wasn't there anymore. They said he was alive. I mean, all this is going on. We, we, we thought he was redemption. We thought he was going to buy us out. What's Jesus say to them? Don't worry about it, guys. Everything will be fine. No, he didn't say that. You foolish men. You're foolish. You're slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. <laughs> he says, listen, you... You just missed it, and you didn't miss it because you didn't have enough information. You didn't miss it because the Old Testament doesn't tell me, tell you that there's a Redeemer, and that I'm He, and that it's clear that it's a family issue, and that, that there's a kinsman Redeemer, and that God would send one, and, and, and all that's been happening. You didn't miss that. You've seen it all, but you're slow to heart to believe. You didn't think it was necessary that the Messiah must suffer. He must die and enter into his glory. So what's Jesus do? Jesus walks along because Jesus is the author of the entire scripture. And in a moment's notice and however much time it took, he gives him an entire exegetical sermon from the beginning of Moses all the way through the Old Testament. And shows him who, it is, who he is. Says, I'm the Redeemer. Listen, beloved, when we look at the Old Testament, the idea of redemption is always at the price of a release. For a release, there's always a price. There's always a price. And it's never potential. It's always actual. In other words, redemption, there's never the idea of just a simple release. No, there's always a severe price to be paid. If it's a simple release. There's other words that they used for that. It wasn't redemption. But when we... 
think about redemption. It's always at a price. And its goal always is the actual freedom, the actual release, the actual deliverance from the previous condition. It's never hypothetical, never potential, never simply just future freedom. It's always actual freedom. When Christ died on the cross, when the atonement took place through the death of Christ, redemption was actual. Was actual. He paid the price for our redemption. That's just the first word. That's just the first word. We're going to get a little bit more into that even next time, but that's just the first word. There's a few others that we're going to look at and involve this. And then down the road, we're going to get into even some of those passages that confuse us when it comes to the atonement, like the idea that didn't Jesus die for everybody? Doesn't the Bible say that he died for all? So how can we say that he actually paid the price only for those whom will be saved? We'll get into that so that we're not confused. Some of these difficult passages, in fact, we're going to get into one a little bit next Sunday morning in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Although I may not deal with it there, I may deal with it in this e- in our evening services because it, we can get into more detail about it then. But anyway, that's where we're going. I hope it hasn't stretched our minds too much. I hope you haven't been confused. I hope it's helpful to think through this. If you think, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, it, it has everything to do with us as Christians, everything to do with our understanding of the doctrines of the Scripture particularly the doctrine of salvation and how we evangelize other people, how we think about that. So I hope to hope we'll see that over time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. Thank you for the truth of it and the glory of it, the wonder of it, that you would set out such a plan to deal with those things that separate us with you. Lord, we know that we cannot do it on our own. We know that Jesus Christ and Him him only is salvation. And so we're grateful that you have done that for us, even though we may not understand all the details in every way and how to explain these things and think through the, the deep, profound nature of what it means and what happened when Christ died for us. But Lord, I trust that you will open our hearts and minds to these things and that you will give us understanding because you promised to. So help us as we interact with individuals in our day and age and in the world in which we live, friends, family, co-workers, those around us. Lord, may we be clear in our gospel that they might know Jesus Christ, know their sinfulness and turn from it, that they might know life in his name. Thank you for our time. May you bless us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.